Good morning, everybody. Turn with me, if you will, to John's Gospel, John chapter 1. That's normal. I've wrestled with the title a little bit of how to tweak it, what to say, and oftentimes I just do what I preach so often, just lean on what the Word of God says and use that as my title. So our title this morning is Behold the Lamb of God. Is the microphone not... Well, let's try again. I know why it's not working. Somebody needs to turn it on for it to work. <laughs> need to talk to my AV guy about that. How about now? Is it on? Yeah, it's on. All right, gave y'all sufficient time to get to John's Gospel this morning, so, <laughs> you know, as I looked at this text, and I told Marty yesterday, he told, he mentioned that we spoke yesterday afternoon, um, I laid it out, it's in your bulletin, that would be in John 1, 29 through 34, y'all knew you already known that would have been a stretch for me to cover that many verses. As I kind of went to do my finalizing of my notes yesterday, I kept adding more and more and more notes, and it was all on verse 29. And so today, today we will read for the context of the verses we're in, 29 through 34, but the primacy or the totality of our <laughs> preaching will be on verse 29 and where that leads us throughout God's Word. You know, there are so many sections of this gospel that I'm excited to preach on, um, Whenever I was a Sunday school teacher and threw out Lifeway material about a decade ago, the very first book that I went to to teach expository through verse by verse was John's Gospel. It took us nearly two years to get through it, teaching through it, so we're going to be here for a while. But this is one of those sections, this is one of those texts that is just so glorious to teach on. Now that's not to diminish anywhere else in God's Word, I say it so many times how often that all scripture is God-breathed. Every word is important. Every jot, every tittle, as the word tells us, is important. But there are certain texts that you come to that just jump out at you even more. And not just jumping out at you, but how much depth and how much that text might be pregnant with truth that I want to share and help that we help that the God's people understand what it's saying. And this is one of those texts this morning. There's going to be a lot of these texts as we go through John's gospel, by the way. Um, last week was a big section, but it was so so much narrative, and there wasn't a whole lot of depth. We had to plumb there, but there were some very important things that we understood there as John was presented as the forerunner. My study and preparation stays the same, though. No matter when I know what the text is coming up, I still will prepare and study the same way. The 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 outpouring of that you see normally is, is um, how many verses we get through based on that same preparation because certain verses we go through a little quicker. But I will say this also, I feel a tremendous responsibility to God and to you, not just on Sunday morning when I step into this pulpit, but in all the hours and days leading up to that moment to prepare God's word for y'all and to give him glory and honor in that, in prayer and diligent study Trusting, though, on God's grace and God's provision 
to reveal to me these truths and to perform this task. John Knox was once asked about his fear of the queen because he said much against the queen and had a lot of threats about his speaking out against the queen as the ruler. He said, never once have I feared the queen of England or any man, but I tremble every time I step into the pulpit. This was a powerful man of God that God used mightily during the Reformation in Scotland. But this is a verse that excites me to share with y'all this morning. I'm always excited to share God's word with you, but this is a certain text. We find ourselves in this section that has an innumerable amount of truth as we continue in John's gospel. I trust that you will see that as well. As I said already, so much of last week was narrative and a bit easier to see the depths of. Today's a little different. The narrative's still there, but there's some theological truths we need to get to. So with all that said, not quite a proper introduction, more of a pouring out my heart to you of how I prepared, but let us turn to this text, John 1, and I'm going to read through the entirety of this day, as you're going to see as John gives it to us, starting in verse 29. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, what a tremendous joy, privilege to be in your house today, to look at your word, to think upon your son, to marvel at the grace and mercy you pour out upon your people. Father, I pray as we handle these words that we rightly divide the truth, that your people would be encouraged that your people would be left even more in awe of who you are than perhaps they were the moment before they got here this morning. And Lord, I also would ask, would plead of you that if someone here today does not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would tear down the walls or that you would breathe life into them so that they might repent and believe the gospel. Father, I commend this service to you. Please remove me anywhere that I might be a stumbling block. Let your people hear your word proclaimed this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. From the very first verse, from the very first words of the verse, we see this is pregnant with language that we must plumb the depths of. This verse is so full of truth, as is all of God's word. The first thing I want to point you to, we're not going to spend much time on this, and I kind of referenced it already, is that John at this point is kind of walking us through a chronological 
series of events. And he lets <laughs> us know that by saying on the next day. So we know this is the day immediately preceding the day that just came when the, 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 the contention or, or the, the delegation came to the, him asking him some questions. <laughs> now, if you just do a quick scan of John's gospel, the first chapter, you'll see that this kind of keeps going that way. Verse 35, on the next day. Verse 43, on the next day. John 2, 1, before we get to the wedding at Cana, on the third day. So he's giving us a series of events as they are happening before us. Now, in and of itself, that's not extremely important, and that is not one of the depths we're going to plumb this morning, but I think it's interesting nonetheless to know what how he's laying this out before us. Last Sunday, as he says here on the next day, last Sunday we spoke of this delegation that came from the Pharisees to come question John the Baptist, to determine who he was. And as we saw, more or less, they were really wanting to see who he said he was, than not just who he was. John denied that he was the Christ. He denied that he was Elijah. He denied that he was the prophet. And we talked about that last week. He identified himself as what? The forerunner of Christ as identified in Isaiah 40 and 3. He says that in verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. He told him who he was. He understood who he was. God had called him. He also goes on to tell them in verses 26 and 27 these words. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. This is one who is he who comes after me of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. As the forerunner, he's saying, and he is here. This is who I am, and he's here. So this next day, and we see he has arrived. We see John's reaction. We see John's proclamation of the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Further described that he takes away sin. Now we're going to get to the comments of sin and world before we finish today. But I want to focus on this title for a moment. That he is the Lamb of God. Now you might think that scripture is full of Jesus being called the Lamb of God, or, or perhaps maybe that the New Testament is full of him being called the Lamb of God. John is the only Bible writer that actually uses that term multiple times. It's alluded to in Peter, and Paul alludes to it as well, but actually calling him the Lamb of God is just in Paul's writings. We're going to see it a couple times in John's Gospel, but in the book of Revelation, penned by the human author being John as well, it's used there also. It, it's... Well, let me say this, just because it isn't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in no way diminishes or calls into question whether or not John the Baptist said it. He said it. Scripture tells us he said it. Here is the Lamb of God. Not just here is, behold, acknowledge, recognize, here is the Lamb of God. John's purpose in his Gospels we shared last week was a little different. In John 20, verse 30, in chapter 20, verse 31 tells us that. But at this point, this title deserves some careful consideration based on some of the things I just told you, does it not? The very force and importance of this title is so very important to understand. If you're to understand justification at all, you need to understand what is being said here, that he is the Lamb of God. If you're to understand propitiation and atonement and some of those big dollar fifty words that I've talked to you about, 
We need to understand what this means that he is the Lamb of God. There are a multitude of titles given to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? John could have used any number of titles that would have been completely accurate and truthful of who Jesus was when he announced his arrival. Yet, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is the title he used. Lamb of God. Now, the world today and the world then would have accepted Jesus pretty clearly if he, had he come as a social reformer or a conquering king over the Romans or just a good teacher and he would have been received well. John says, he is the lamb. And the significance to the Jewish listeners would have been, the lamb's purpose was what? To be slain. Especially because it points out here, because of the sin of man, is why he's to be sinned. That would have ruffled their feathers, to put it mildly. They did not like that term. And yet it was necessary that a lamb be sacrificed. The teaching of scripture is crystal clear that sin must be atoned for. It will either be atoned for by the sinner or it is atoned for by, that, by the Lord Jesus Christ in which he atoned for the believer. It will be paid for. God himself sacrificed the first animal as an example. We're nearly there in Genesis 3. Nearly. And it's a type of what was necessary. As our first parents fell in the garden and tried to cover their own sin and cover their own shame and hide themselves, it was quickly revealed to them and to us now that their attempts to do so was insufficient. Genesis 3, verse 7 and 8 Everybody last Wednesday night was really trying to get to verse 7 and 8 and get past verse 5, but we didn't get there. So maybe we'll get there this Wednesday night. Genesis 3, 7 and 8. This is after they had both eaten. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. So they tried to cover their sin and there had to been something to recognize they didn't, that wasn't quite good enough. So not only that, but they're going to hide themselves as well. Man is still doing that today. Amen. Trying to find a way to cover their sins themselves and recognizing they can't, they try to hide from God. They might not even know they're doing it, but that's what man is doing. Now, personally, well, let's look at verse 21, because after the curse, after God calls them out in the curse, we skip down to verse 21, and we see this. Then Yahweh God, or Lord God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Church, what had to happen for him to make garments of skin? There was a sacrifice. The first sacrifice God made. Now, I'm speculating here, and I'm trying to, I'm reading into the text, and I don't like to do that, but I'm going to make a comment of what I hope is true. This first sacrifice was, in fact, a lamb also. I have no way to prove that. Scripture does not tell me that. But I like to think in my heart and my mind that perhaps that is the case. It's absolutely possible. Genesis 4 and 2. This is Cain and Abel. We know parts of this story quite well. And again, she, this is after the birth of Cain. 
And again, she, meaning Eve, gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. Now, once again, I would like to think that the flocks he kept were sheep as well. Scripture doesn't tell me that. I looked at the word flocks, and I looked at it in the original Hebrew, and I looked at it in the, the Greek and Septuagint to see if it gave me more insight, and it did not, because flocks can mean cattle, it can mean sheep, it can mean any number of animals, but sheep is one of them it can be. So, and then if you know that Abel, verse 4 on his part, also brought, I'm sorry, let me back up. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground, verse 4. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So there's offerings there. There's sacrifice there. There's offerings there of atonement. And if you fast forward to Genesis 22, verse 8, another familiar portion of scripture, but I want to set the context here of what we're talking about with the Lamb of God. Genesis 22, 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now we know this is whenever God told him to take Isaac up and to bring this firewood and to make an offering. And there was no animal that he was taking. The verse prior to that says this, and I, perhaps I should have read it. Verse 7, then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but there, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then we read verse 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now, with that being Genesis chapter 22, and us being in Genesis right now, we may get there in about five years, but we will explore that text when we get there. By the way, there's going to be a couple of those texts today that I'm going to reference in John and other places that we will get to. So we're not going to explore all the details. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what's going on here and what's being said. In Exodus... Chapter 12, if you know Exodus, you know what happens in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the presentation of the Passover lamb, the introduction of Passover. And when Jesus, or when God said that he was going to strike down these children and for what the Hebrew children, the families were to do. In Exodus 12 and verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 12 and 13. And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the lamb. Protecting the children. Protecting the family. And we see it. And all of that is pointing to Christ Jesus, the perfect lamb of God. Amen. In Isaiah 53... We see it personified. We see a glimpse of that which was yet to come. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shear, so he did not open his mouth. Now we know that was speaking of an event that was to happen 600 years after this, 
when Christ Jesus would be the sacrifice. The lamb is important. Now, you may be wrestling in your mind a little bit, but I've seen lamb and sheep and what's going on here. Now, we've got a couple of local lamb farmers sitting in the pews over here. But technically, a lamb is a sheep under the age of one years old. So it's a young animal. It becomes sheep. John 1, 29. And here he is. Here is this lamb. Here is that all the sacrifices led to, pointed to, were directed towards. He is here. And he is perfect and he is spotless and he is God also. We see the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies pointing to the person of Christ and here he is. And John says, behold, here he is. In Revelation chapter 5, the lamb is magnified by the heavenly host. In Revelation 22, 1, we read this, very last chapter of God's word. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You might also remember a couple of weeks ago, we made a comment that in Revelation, it also speaks of the judgment to come from God, and it says the judgment of the Lamb. The same Lamb. We also know, I hope, that God's Word teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. In spite of that teaching from God, in spite of him providing a sacrifice, in spite of all that it had come through the church fathers or the, the, the early patriarchs, Isaiah one eleven, we read this. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. I take no pleasure. Let me read on. It's not in, it won't be on the board. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. He's saying, you're doing this year over year. You're just going through the motions, though. This is not paying for anything. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to do it year over year over year, right? Christ died once. Let me say this. What else is this saying? It's saying believers have always been saved by grace through faith. The Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith. Faith in God's promise of an acceptable sacrifice to come. Trusting in him and his word. As Abraham, Abraham's a great example for us, right? When he takes Isaac up, God will provide. Now, we can get into a lot of discussion, and we will when we get to that on whether or not he thought God would provide another sacrifice or whether or not he would raise up Isaac if he sacrificed him, that's to come on Wednesday nights at some time in the future. Maybe not so near future, but we're going to get there. As God did temporarily for Abraham in that moment, for Abraham and Isaac, he does for all those saved in the blood of Christ. In the perfect lamb.
back to our text for a moment. So when he says, behold the Lamb of God, this is also pointing to the sacrifice that is going to come. There is a sacrifice coming. It does speak to his gentleness and his meekness on this earth, but more than anything, it speaks to what is to come. And we know from this moment forward, we're only three, three and a half years away from that happening. His ministry launches from this point and goes about three and a half years before he's on that tree to pay for my sins. And yours if you know him. Amen. Now, John also makes it clear if that wasn't clear enough, and he, he could have stopped right there and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He goes further and says, Who takes away the sin of the world? The purpose of that Lamb. Individual sins, plural, yes, but more broadly speaking to sin itself and the penalty thereof. The problem is sin. Yes, we're entrapped by multiple sins, but sin singular is the problem. Sin is a problem we all have. It's the problem that everyone in the world has. It's a problem from which all other things you see come from. The very earth is cursed because of sin. The very earth cries out for redemption because of sin. Sin is the problem. This title also points to his perfections, does it not? The sacrificed lamb was to be perfect without blemish in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the times of your sojourn knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The lamb as he appeared in John 1.29 is this lamb that Peter speaks about after the cross. Verse 20 and 21. Next two verses. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now we see a word here that we use other places when it talks about foreknowledge and salvation, but he says this of Christ. And we know in the context of this, that this was not a looking down the tunnel of time and seeing something that was going to happen. Foreknown here clearly is easily translated as loved before. To know. Of course he knew him before because they are, he is God. And then he appeared. The humility and gentleness for his own are in display. Just take a glance at Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Now let me, I need to set the context of this. If you don't know where we are in Acts, when I reference this verse, this is the, the Ethiopian who's reading scripture and doesn't understand what he's reading. And Philip <laughs> appears to him. And here's what happens next. And now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. As a sheep is led to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. Now we know what verse that is now because we just looked at it. Isaiah 53, 7. This is what verse that God had led this man to be reading that he had in his possession. And he was saved. And Philip took him down and baptized him. 
more specifically, this term speaks to the sacrifice to come. That he will be the lamb. Now, I hope you get that. I hope you understand the importance of that term. I hope you understand what he's saying there. And that he had to come and he had to be as a lamb. That all the lambs, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed directly to him. Now, let's wrestle with the second part of this verse. That takes away the sin of the world. That takes away the sin of the world. Consider the indictment in Romans. Romans chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 will pop up on the board. But I want to back up to verse 9. What then? Are we better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And it goes on and on for a couple more verses of this indictment of man because of sin. It's important for us to keep in mind that verse, in context, when we think about God's grace and God's election and God's predestinating power and our overwhelming need for an atoning sacrifice. Because that says we can't do it. Amen. And what we can't do, God has done. Amen. But let's deal with the language a little bit here. We need to understand this, church. Taking away sin of the world. First of all, this is not teaching universalism. This is not teaching that everybody will be saved in the end. I don't think I have to convince any of y'all that. I think you're enough in your word that you know it's not teaching that. But you may face people out there in the highways and byways of life that may bring this charge to you. Well, why do I need to do that? It says he's, everybody's going to be saved. No, that's not what it's saying. You take that verse itself, perhaps you could make it say that, but I don't even think so, because let me say this. Let's consider what is it in this verse. What does it not say? It does not say all the world will be saved. It does not say everyone in the world will be saved. You have to really stretch and claw and find a way to manipulate this verse to make it say what a universalist wants it to say. But what does it say? Then what is it saying, brother? The Greek word for world is cosmos. Like we think of cosmos, but with a K instead of a C on the front end of it. And that word is used throughout the New Testament and throughout Greek literature in multiple different ways. Here, there's two ways to look at this. Here, it can refer to humanity in general. To the world without distinction. So what it's, what, if you take that approach, what you're saying is it, trans, it, it transcends national borders, ethnic borders, racial borders. Remember the Jews. Who did the Jews think the Messiah was coming for? For them and them alone. And what do we know on this side of the cross? Now, even if you go back to Old Testament, it teaches about that he would be a light unto the nations. That he's the savior of the world. Again, that does not mean every single person in the world. We're going we're gonna to try to work through this. It reveals that sin is worldwide, does it not? Sin is worldwide. The sin is in the world. It's all over the world. There's not just one group of people. Everybody is infected by sin. Amen. And it also teaches this. The only acceptable sacrifice for anyone, anywhere in the world, is found only in Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's not saying everybody's going to be saved. 
It's just saying this is the only sacrifice for anyone in the world, regardless of their background, history, race, color, creed, any of that stuff. He is the only Savior. In Him alone. The Messiah of the Jews is the only Messiah for all people. For all people groups in the entire world. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, until now, and for anyone not yet born, he is the only Savior. There's not another one. There's not another one coming. Amen. There's not multiple options. There's not 25 different ways to get to that mountaintop. There's only one way, and it is narrow. Amen. There's no other land. God only accepts the land that he himself sent in the person of Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man. Now, we must plumb a little deeper here. You didn't know, you knew it wasn't going to be a short one when I said just one verse, right? That's usually the opposite for me. When I say one verse, that usually means we're going to be here maybe a little bit longer, a minute or two or five or so. It is sufficient. The work of Christ is sufficient and it's powerful enough to save all men who've ever walked the face of the earth. Amen. It is sufficient enough. It is powerful enough. Amen. Yet, its efficacy, its, its, its attachment to, is for the world of the believers only. For the elect only. Otherwise, everybody would be saved. Do we understand that? Romans 8. Surprise, surprise. We're not going to 28, though. Romans 8, you can go there if you want to, but I mean, <laughs> Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The world of believers. The world of the elect. For all those outside of Christ, there is condemnation though, is there not? Yeah. Romans 8 and 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so, not able to do it. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Amen. Verse 9, it's on, not up there. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Amen. Cosmos, the world. Spiritually speaking, there's the world of the godly and there's the world of the ungodly. Just like there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. 2 Peter 2.5 gives us a, a, a good example of, of how cosmos is used two different ways in the same verse. 2 Peter 2.5 And did not spare the ancient world, there's cosmos, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Cosmos. One is physical, one is the actual, the people of that world in the same verse, the same Greek word is cosmos. I looked it up. It's the same word used both times in two different ways. Generally, he flooded the entire world, the physical world. But then he says the world of the ungodly. Cosmos once again. 
the delineation of the world of the ungodly. Those who are outside the covenant of grace. So despite what some may tell you, there is a limit on the atonement. The atoning work of Christ. There's a limit on it. Not because of the power of it. it like I said already, the power and the sufficiency of, of the atonement is absolutely powerful enough and sufficient enough to save everybody of all time, of all race, of all creed, in all of history, and all that's yet to come. But the application thereof, there's a limit to it. It's a God-induced limit to it, though. It's not a man-induced limit to it. It's what God has put on it. It is for those who have and will believe in him. Not one single drop of Christ's blood was shed in vain. Not one drop is laying on the ground saying, boy, I wish I could apply that to somebody. It's not. Every drop he spilled is applied. That should give you great comfort. It may upset your sensibilities a little bit about what you've heard. Man does not activate some power in the blood. When we sing there's power in the blood, we're not saying, boy, Jim sure did activate that power. I'm glad he did that. There's power in the blood because it is Christ's blood. It is the blood of God. Amen. There's the power, Amen. not in any of you nor in me. Amen. And praise God for it. Amen. Because if it were up to me, I'd apply it and take it off and apply it and take it off whenever I saw something I wanted to do. What? Well, let me, like I didn't. No, no, no. That's not the way it works. Right. We do not have that power. Man isn't deciding to apply Jesus' work in their life. Nor did God look down the tunnel of time and say, well, that one's going to do it, so I'm going to apply it. I just hope he does what he said he's going to do. It's not the way it works. Now, you might think, brother, I'm thinking about some verses. Well, I'm glad you're thinking about them because we're about to go to them, and we're going to go to them in more detail in months to come. John 3, the conversation with Nicodemus. We often go to when it talks about the wind blows where it blows. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, as being the spirit and how it works upon the lost sinner. John 3, verse 14 is now on the board. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking to his coming crucifixion. Verse 15 and 16. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Praise God. Amen. It doesn't always mean what it's put out there. The cause and effect of these verses is often put the other direction. You don't activate the power of the blood. It doesn't teach that. We're going to look at that in more detail whenever we get to John John 3. If I started going down the path I would want to go to right now, we'd be here for a couple more hours. So I'm going to hold off on that. I want to show you the line, though. Let's work through these verses of what's coming next. After that comment, let's look at what is said next. Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, there's that might there. Keep tracking with me. Verse 18 helps us to see what's really going on and what's really being said. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged. When? Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Church, Everyone that God has planned and purpose to believe will believe. That all means all there. 
But everyone means everyone there. Not everyone in the whole world. This is where the hackles get raised when you talk about election and predestination. We're not going to go all the way down that path today. I just want to point you to this and that the blood is did accomplish and is continuing to accomplish exactly what it was purposed and planned to accomplish for exactly who it was planned and purposed to accomplish it for. Jesus isn't going to lose any, guys. He's not going to lose any. The book of Acts, chapter 10, and verse 43. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All the believing. John chapter 10. Again, we're going to hit some more John verses, and I'm not going to go great detail because we're going to be in those one of these days. John 10, 11. I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Yeah, brother, I get that. Well, who are the sheep? What, what are the sheep? Who are the sheep? Where, where, where they come from? Verse 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, we're getting a little bit clearer here. He lays down his sheep for life for the sheep that he knows, and they will know him. But that still doesn't tell us who they are. John chapter 6 doesn't tell us exactly who they are, but it tells us a lot. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, All that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now, now we want to separate, we want to accept the fact that if you're in Christ Jesus, you will never lose your salvation. We don't swallow the first part of that as well that all that come to the son were given by the father and they will all come again I've talked about this many times what should that do for your evangelism that, that, that it's based on who God gives to the son it should set your evangelism on fire because you know that all that the father is going to give to the son will come you just preach the gospel you just teach the gospel you just share the gospel you just be a witness to the gospel and God will bring the harvest that's why we can sit in a room full of 2,000 people and two people get up front and make a profession of faith, as we say. Well, how is it those two figured it out? Are they smarter than everybody else? No. The work of the Spirit in their hearts convicted, converted, and brought them to that point of repentance. Because oftentimes he calls the one who is not the smartest person in the room. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus, as the Lamb, is the only perfect propitiatory sacrifice for all in the world that have been, are currently, or will be saved. Amen. You might say he's the Lamb of the elect. You might say he is the Lamb of God. You might say he is the Lamb of all those that have been given unto the Son. All those are true statements. 
his atoning work on the cross was not only perfect, but it was completed, was it not? When he was on that cross and he cried out, and he cried out, it is finished. Nothing else needed to be done. It is finished. Amen. The Bible teaches quite the opposite of universalism. Amen. The gospel is a narrow, small, hard to find path, and no one finds it without God showing it to him. Amen. It teaches that most will face eternal punishment. Let's not hide from that truth. The Bible clearly says it. And it's a literal hell. Amen. Only a few in the grand scheme of the history of mankind will be saved. Comparatively speaking to all those that will face eternal judgment. Amen. In Matthew 7, we preached to this. I think this was our first sermon series here was to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. Now for those of you who are raising children, for those of us that were children at one time, we've used terminology. Well, everybody's doing it. That is a very broad path then, isn't it? I mean, we kind of, we're, we're driven down that way. That's the way we want to go. Man is on the broad path. God must intervene and break through and breathe life into the unregenerate person to regenerate them so that they might repent and believe the gospel and put them upon the narrow path to show to them the door, which is only in Christ Jesus. He's the only way. The lamb was in their midst. This lamb that we just talked about was in their very midst. His ministry was about to begin, the fulfillment of all those prophecies. The Passover lamb. He was to go to that cross. He would die on that tree and he would do so for the sacrifice of his bride. We don't use that term enough. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride, quite frankly, nobody told you who you could call and choose for your bride. We sure do put restrictions on God saying who he could call for his bride. The church is his bride. And he died for his bride. A sacrifice for his bride. So that they may spend eternity in joyful bliss with him. And then he received the glory and the honor and the praise. And he does. If you're sitting here today, I solemnly charge you that if you've never made a profession of faith, that if God is convicting you of sin in your heart, that you repent and believe the gospel because he is worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father God, creator, sustainer, Father, we just give you praise. We can do no less. And we should do much more. That you sent your son to be the perfect sacrifice. That he alone can take away sin. God, convict our hearts. God, for those of us who have been believers for a long time or for a short time, let us 
have exceeding joy in our hearts for what you've done for us. Let us go forth and share this truth with others. We don't have to share all the details of what we've looked at today. This is some deep thinking, deep theology, deep truths. But God, we are to call everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That is our charge. And trust that you will bring the harvest. We love you. We thank you. We praise your holy name. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.